but it's it's surprising how much you miss just going and physically externalizing some of your stresses and strains yeah it's absolutely um, sleeping better and everything yeah yeah drinking less i feel like it's those are the it's pretty unhealthy yeah (laughs) those are the two ways i have stress yeah it's a bit all or nothing as well isn't it like if you're being healthy going to the gym you're like you don't feel like you need to drink to kind of do something at the end of the day whereas like Mm. for me if i've just been sitting at home i like need to booze because like you know though this weekend fuck i'm gonna be I'm, i'm just talking off i'm watching a shit ton of football and drinking loads of beer it's gonna be great you're gonna you guys are gonna end up beating your girlfriends listen to the pair of you i'm gonna just like i don't have any way to externalize my physical stresses <laughs> i can't get to the gym i'm gonna get drunk and watch lots of football on my own that is now you're showing your real yeah exactly exactly oh oh bitch i can't believe this is the reason why you were so critical of all those anti-brexit people is because (laughs) you were really talking about yourself (laughs) i don't have a girlfriend and i fucking hate football so there you go no football's working class sorry mate (laughs) it really isn't fucking girl still still though thinking that people who watch football and drink beer are going to beat their wives or girlfriends <laughs> is really nasty prejudice and i can't believe we've that's given voice to that this, on this that's podcast little britain humor <laughs> i'm a fan of little britain oh jesus it. are you serious <laughs> oh, fucking no i'm hell. not um actually no, this is this is I very just, much to the point we're going to talk about it. this um so let's uh, let's yeah. get started well, it's good you started recording well indeed All right, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. This is another three articles. Welcome to all the new patrons. Uh, you might not be familiar with the format. It's a bit of a show and tell. We each bring three articles to discuss on a given theme, um, and then we discuss them. Uh, fairly straightforward. Um, I'm sure you'll be able to follow along. Um, this one we're talking about Black Lives Matter, about the global BLM protests. Uh, we're talking about one which is an analysis of what's going on in the US, one which is a kind of more British take, uh, and then thirdly, we're going to be discussing my article which came out in Damage this week on, well, for you it'll be last week, uh, on global Americanization, the globalization of wokeness, and so on. Um, very much to the point uh, is what we were just talking about, about British TV shows getting cancelled. Um <laughs> Or, or getting taken off air because they uh, didn't don't fit the prejudices of today. I think Phil, you were tweeting about this earlier today. Retrospectively cancelled. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Phil, you were tweeting about this oh, today, right? Yeah. Like the, the, like something like no longer fits the whatever tenor of the times, but it was like an, a show from only ten years ago, which kind yeah, of yeah. So it's extraordinary. Yeah, my, the mighty Bush, um, and by uh, two guys who are still very much um, what is his name, Noel Fielding and um, Julian no, Barrett. Yes, Julian Barrett, that's right. Two guys who are very much, um, you know, kind of uh, active, non-retired, working and present in British um, in British television and comedy and various TV shows. And the way it was presented as if it was, you know, like the black and white minstrels show or something from, you know, some kind of um, half a century ago back in the 1950s. It was an astonishing um, rewriting essentially and i mean um i guess i guess that makes it i guess that i I mean the not not to justify it but i guess to explain it is that because it's kind of contemporaneous with our period it's more embarrassing to them because there's someone in blackface i mean it's not even properly blackface but anyway um 
that 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 feels more embarrassing to them than something which is like from the 1950s and obviously racist where it's like oh yeah but that was the bad racist days of the 50s we're not like that anymore yeah i mean but but I it's also so. preempt- it must be it's preemptive as well so it's not you know i don't think that anyone um you know sat down and were kind of thought um you know kind of was uh, under pressure i think so it shows the kind of the built-in logic of escalation it's a preemptive move, and maybe some people do think it's racist and problematic who work for the BBC, and but mainly they would have persuaded others that there is no, we have no way to defend ourselves, to defend our content, and we're racist, yeah. in fact. And so they immediately <laughs> kind of concede mm. the point that yeah, they're racist, yeah. and we see yeah. it across institutions, universities in particular, um, and professional associations. Um, most kind of dramatically, if you see it with, say, for instance, shock. I mean, it's really shocking. So you see it, for instance, with, um, <laughs> excuse me, my union, the University College um, Union in the in the UK, the lo- largest higher education union in the world, and the General Secretary Joe Grady has basically issued a statement um, saying we're racist. You know, effectively slandering the entire membership and saying that the association itself is riddled with um, racist attitudes and prejudice and and is part of reproducing um, systemic racism. And so how on earth is such an organization? But, you know, the same people who kind of think that they're fighting racism are also at the same time part of a racist organization, and it just collapses in on itself. And I think maybe this kind of the way in which it disables action, disables thought, disables causality is indeed one of its um, uh, effects. You know, that's the way it works in in effect. Um, Because, you know, the the racist organization is expected to purge the country and universities (laughs) of racism. I mean, it just doesn't, you know, it literally is incoherent. Um, And so this is the climax of this self-flagellating collapse of morale yeah. and analysis and everything anyway but i'm it's, getting carried away no no i think it's i think it puts universities in in your case in a, in a in a bit of a tricky position to then go and ask for funding from the government because you're essentially saying on the one hand this is a problematic racist organization or set of organizations and on the other hand can you please fund us government so and run run by a government lost. that they accuse of being white supremacist and they mm, need to turn mm. to that government well. to get support for higher education in this country after saying the universities are racist, our unions are racist, the government is white supremacist, give us money. <laughs> yeah. I mean it does seem like a yeah, like particularly kind of like neoliberal immobilism. Like nothing gets done and that's kind of the way yeah, that people exactly. in power are, are very happy for it to be, really. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, the status quo it preserves in it, the effect is to preserve the status quo through moral kind of this kind of orgiastic display of um moral kind of decadence and self-hatred and whatever however else you want to describe the yeah, yeah, yeah. middle class hysteria yeah i mean britain seems particularly bad on this regard i mean the the kind of cancelling of tv shows for i mean things which couldn't even pro- possibly be even described as transgressions is is, is mad um anyway maybe we should get started actually on it might, uh, on to, in- it might need to lead to a kind of um you can imagine like people t- instead of smuggling kind of literature into into you know <laughs> sam is that vhs's of little britain and like i don't know oh. i mean who yeah who who's gonna watch that but 
faulty towers also got got the chop as well so you can imagine this um kind of covert system of of network of of passing this limited stuff around i don't know who started it like it was a tweet or you know like this kind of meme of like stop it liberals you're going to get us all killed like that just keeps coming to mind now um because there will be a backlash against this surely because it's just too insane um not to and that won't be good either so we should we should we should we should move on to the yeah. articles because I think we have a we have I'm not sure we all agree on the this point about about the backlash or at least I I'm not sure I agree with you too but we'll we'll see. Um, so, right. So the first one is going to be introduced by Phil, right? Um, an uh, an article in Nonsite: uh, The Triumph of Black Lives Matter and Neoliberal Redemption by Cedric Johnson. Take it away, Phil. Yeah. Um... So it's an astonishing piece um, in that it's so um, clinical and restrained and yet um, completely devastating in the conclusions that it draws. So it takes inspiration from, I mean, it kind of it's discussing everything that's happening in the States, but particularly beginning with um, that extraordinary photo of Democratic um, politicians, Democratic leaders, including Nancy Poloni, Draped in the um, in the kind of those colourful African um, scarves that were you know uh, kind of popularised by um, you know became Afri- a kind yeah. of item of Afrocentrism, um, nationalist, yeah, Afrocentric kind of African yeah. African nationalist um, clothing back when. Anyway, so these white, um, predominantly white, demo- and well-known, powerful, famous democratic politicians undergoing social distancing, all kneeling, and he picks up from that to launch this kind of. Um, absolutely kind of devastating slow motion um, bombardment of what's happened, what is happening with Black Lives Matters, drawing on particularly um, the work of Adolf Reed Jr. Um, He's also kind of um, been a critic of the um, communalist politics of the left with respect to race in America. And some of the most, I mean, I just want to kind of draw out some of the most um, important points where he talks about it so he or, so he says about how it's been a very effective um mechanism support for black lives matters has been a very effective mechanism by which the democratic party has recohered itself after the primaries um so even people who are kind of not particularly known for um uh, being kind of uh, for in support of prison reform have suddenly kind of hin- have suddenly pivoted behind black lives matters he also, and very correctly and importantly, I think, identifies the moment as very important, which it comes after the defeat of the left. And he's thinking in particular of Bernie's capitulation and the primaries, which makes effectively um, will you know, lead to Joe Biden's coronation at the Democratic Convention later this summer. But he says that this has been a kind of way for the Democratic Party to recohere itself and to absorb all that energy that was dispersed and, um, you know, sent out possibly in ways that went beyond the control of the democratic leadership. So they found a way to very effectively um, Mm re-legitimize themselves, particularly because it's all these fuckers who've been opposing anything that could be seen as remotely progressive, medically all free higher Mm -hmm. education, public goods, even um, refusal to kind of prune some of the, um, you know, to kind of um, prune some of the powers of the, the police and re-establish civil liberties. So that's one very important point he draws out. He links it to the defeat of the left. He draws yeah. on Adolf Reed's point about this that it's it's you know it's a so it's a mistake among some on the left. 
to kind of get um, concerned that these kinds of, you know, kind of cultural or uh, movements for racial justice can end up um, uh, avoiding the the reality of class politics. They kind of, you know, end up being, um, you know, they get kind of, there's a they're diversionary in effect. It's well-meaning, but diversionary. And Reed kind of ruthlessly says, and this is um, what Johnson takes in the piece, he says, anti-racism is not a different sort of egalitarian alternative to a class politics, this is Reed talking, but is a class politics itself. The left wing of neoliberalism, in that its sole metric of social justice is opposition to disparity in the distribution of goods and bads in the society. So the point is that the way in which it's being um, channeled and controlled is to work to reinforce the Democratic Party, and that's the the, politi- yeah. the ultimate political upshot, and that it is itself a form of class politics, a class politics that reinforces yeah, from above. neoliberal, yeah, that in reinforces neoliberal um, domination, and that reinforces neoliberal structures in society. And this is perhaps I think the most telling because it kind of um, it's obvious when he says it, but you know I've not seen it been drawn attention to anywhere. If you think about um, the head of steam that had been building up over the course of the corona pandemic, over drawing attention to so-called essential workers, care workers, factory workers, transport workers, and the um, conditions in which they were being forced to work and in the midst of kind of um, the threat of con- you know contagion posed by corona and the lockdown and all the other pressures associated with that, and particularly the kinds of companies that were being identified, such as Amazon, Amazon warehouse workers, there was the big, in fact, Amazon was in the news because they were firing union organizers and even kind of, um, you know, they'd even had some leak from inside the organization where they'd been discussing about firing workers that were getting too troublesome. All of that has been completely wiped out. Jeff Bezos. Yeah. The, yeah. Well, hang on, hang on. I mean, Phil, Phil, you're going to now take a, take a breath because <laughs> George is going to jump in. No, I mean, well, let me finish. That, let uh, me finish. Let me finish the point. So, um, which is that, you know, kind of uh, Jeff Bezos, and we'll, there's other examples in the piece, and I'd urge listeners to read it, but, you know, to take the example just of Jeff Bezos, he's pledged $100 million, I think, dollars to um, $100 million to various um, campaigns for racial justice, and he has very, very effectively laundered um, the, his reputation and the reputation of Amazon where it was undergoing such delegitimation in the last few months, and now suddenly it will have its reputation completely um, effectively cleansed by the process of supporting Black Lives Matters. Mm. And that will be the wider pattern in corporate America yeah. and in global corporations as well, because already we're seeing similar, um, similar kind of uh, yeah. practices here in Britain with major banking corporations. Yeah, I mean... A very, a very full introduction um, to the piece, but <laughs> in the sense, the reason I'm saying that it's not, not all that much to add. I think it's, I think you hit the nail on the head in the terms of this is possibly the most uncompromising political critique of um, of BLM that I've that I've I've come across, and I think you, it's definitely worth reading also for the 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 ang the the anger at some of the hypocrisy, particularly. In that around that point about the dem the Democrats rehearing themselves, like the the same people who took who took the knee against racist policing are the ones who opposed all of these things, which I guess the left of the Democrats have been arguing for 
for a while and it's just that that kind of um brazenness um on the part of people like like, like Nancy Pelosi uh, and others it's it's I mean it, it must be very <sighs> galling to be on the defeated side of that and then to see the people who who won in that specific Bernie context uh, then um do things like this so yeah, yeah I think it's a, it's well worth a read and I, and I think like some of the people would I mean obviously to the extent that racism is a real problem in the US and it is but I think that also needs to be qualified and and anyway but without getting into that specific question obviously a lot of these social democratic demands would eliminate or ameliorate at least a lot of racial inequality right um but I think that point is something that like came to me in this discussion online in responses not necessary to this piece but kind of more broadly um which is that and I'm going to try to kind of recapture this relay how this plays out but I think that the kind of um one of the problems with this what what you know what Cedric Johnson and by extension Adolf Reed argues that the kind of these woke politics this kind of woke anti-racism is a class politics from above um that you get the uh, kind of the let's say the social democrats kind of bernie types um arguing that uh basically trying to instead of um combating head on the kind of wokeness right what they end up doing is trying to incorporate kind of liberal identity politics by saying, no, but if we just have these uh, better economic, more class-focused, uh, class-first economic policies, we're going to resolve racism. And it's, a, it's in a way, it's kind of understandable that the kind of uh, identitarians end up rejecting that and going, well, no, of course, that's that's preposterous. How could you resolve racism just by having Medicare for all or whatever? You know, I'm, I'm caricaturing and people have called me out on Twitter for, for caricaturing it. But I mean, I think broadly, that's how that debate ends up playing out. Um, and I think that the reason that it ends up playing out that way is that the kind of understanding of class advanced by uh, by the kind of, you know, the kind of DSA social Democrats is that is that it doesn't really treat class as a real political force and try to aim for political autonomy for the working class, but just, um, you know, just trying to have kind of better, more pro-social policies, which they then try to incorporate the liberals into that same package by going, but this will also deal with with, with racism. And I think that ends up kind of missing a, 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 big, a big sort of point about it. I think, I mean, it's also uh, what it misses, and this is something which is picked up in the Johnson piece, is how much of the um, the intersectional uh, claims about the character of racism in the U.S. miss the mark, and some of this data. I mean, you know, it should be it's known in some circles, but it should be more familiar about the fact, you know, for instance, that black cops are just as likely as white cops to um, discriminate and use force against black civilians, um, and also that, um, and this is picked up, you know. So he says that um, the you can't explain the ferocity and punitive character of the American police state purely by reference to the legacy of slavery. It's yeah. simply, you know, it's far in excess of anything that you could use to explain it simply by reference to the need to hold down um, the African-American population. Mm. And it ha so the only way to properly explain the scale of its kind of um, power 
and its sprawling kind of character in American society. This, you know, prisons, the militarization of the police, the power of the police, yeah. the erosion of civil, all of that. It has to be explained in terms of neoliberalism and in terms of um, the need to, to control and police a population that is not been incorporated into the way in which um, American capitalism functions. So surplus, you know, a surplus population, which is indeed, you know, one of the forms that racial oppression takes and is itself kind of multiracial, but it can't, it's not an institution that can be explained as if it's kind of transmitted from the past as a result of America's original sin. So there's like a racial, there's like a racial inflection to that need to control surplus populations, but it's not driven by exclusively by racism. Yes, exactly. And this is the point that Johnson, you know, it's Reed's point and it's Johnson's point, And it's, it's crucial because um, it is the aunt, it is the re the riposte to the people who, um, who simply can't understand, you know, they can't account, in fact, for the for the punitive, like I say, the kind of punitive character of the American carceral state. And it's um, the extent of its brutality, simply by reference to um uh, you know, settler colonialism, colonialist capitalism, as if, you know, as if we're living in kind of uh, 18th century or 17th century America still, you know, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I think it's one of the limitations of of <clears throat> the sort of positions that, that Johnson and, and Reed are attacking, that they tend to be quite individualizing um, in the sense that <clears throat> racism is a, or the incident which sparked off the BLM protest was an, an individual violent policeman um, and then, then an, individ, an, an individual dying. So the I guess the framework of having a structural explanation of having the economic explanation and the, the necessity of why this surplus population needs to be managed, needs to be um, also then made to work in prison as well. I mean, that's another peculiarity. Yeah of the american american system read the 13th amendment um as yeah as you might put it um yeah i mean it's 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 striking how the i guess the figure of the the bad the bad racist or the the person who you, who you need to kind of struggle against is it is it, it can go hand in hand with things like the um, amazon's kind of all all the brands in fact that were that were standing you know shoulder to shoulder with the blm protest it's like okay there must be there must be some connection between this between these kind of economic factors and this this social um social output surely but that's of course what an individual individually focused explanation occludes always well i mean it's interesting that i I think i saw paul that you know, 75% of Americans think this is systemic um, and only 25% reject reject that idea that they think, no, this was an isolated incident. I mean, obviously you'd say, well, that's still quite a lot. But on the other hand, you know, it's still an overwhelming majority that think that there's a systemic problem. Now, of course, you'd have to drill down further and see what people understand as, a, as, as being systemic, whether it's a product of racism or if it's a product of the police state and, it, and the issues that we've been discussing now in terms of controlling a surplus population and what, you know, what the level of understanding is of that. I don't know. Um, but one of the other things that I wanted to note is that I've seen people arguing, trying to kind of recuperate a, like the kind of radical kernel to this, um, and let me just be clear. I think there is a real radical kernel in opposing the Carl Searle state, opposing um, 
like kind of uh, police brutality and the kind of racialized inflection that that often takes. But on the other side, um, I think that the discourse around it and the way that it's all presented is, and the way that it, as, as is evidenced by the fact that all the brands have jumped on this, is a kind of whitewashing of neoliberalism. Um, and you see that to a certain extent with the knocking down of statues, without getting into that whole debate, uh, you know, it's a, it's a kind of whitewashing of the past for the purposes of the present, uh, a way of, uh, you know, those who like the Democrats, kind of left neoliberals, who want to have a nice, clean capitalism today and not have and are, would be happy to be rid of uh, of the embarrassment of a racist past. Um, but so but there's Absolutely. people. But but the, but the point of what I want to make is that there's some people, I think, trying to recuperate the kind of radical thing to this and say, no, we're not happy about the brands. Um, brands kind of recuperating our radical claims. There is a real radical kind of kernel to Black Lives Matter. But I think the fact that I, th- that it's so easy for the brands to appropriate it shows that that radical kernel is um, is illusory, really. I think well, so, and or, also or, I think or, though, or that there's also... not a social there's not a social force that's organised behind it. I mean, that's the other thing is worth is worth remembering that these these protests came out of a situation of mass demobilization, people being locked down, separated from each other. So there was not a... Yeah, but that, know, but Black Lives Matter has has a history, which is longer yeah, than yeah. that. Although it's a history as a hashtag, not as an organization. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So these, yeah. so these no, protests they, were not... But they, know, I mean, the, yeah, but it's, look, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's kind of, it's, it, you can't explain the extent of what's happening um, without reference to the frustration, anxiety, economic uncertainty, and sheer oppressiveness of what's happened with the lockdown over the you know the last few months as well, I think um, people losing their jobs or frightened of losing their all of that that has to factor into the mix yeah. and explains how quickly it spread. But I think you're right, Alex. But I'd go further. The you know the those so-called radicals who are pretending to be um, worried about the brands colonizing the movement that's just a shakedown. All they want is they're trying to squeeze the brands for a better deal, and it will be no, a new. I don't. Kind I, don't of, th- um, I mean, I, no, no, no. It the, is. the cases It'll that I'm thinking that I'm thinking of are not. I don't have that in mind specifically, but um, ge- it'll be. But it'll there'll be a new class of racial justice NGOs, and you know, people who will um, kind of uh, they will make the brands and the brands consumers feel guilty as a way of empowering, getting greater salaries and gaining greater leverage and influence, and it'll be that same. Um, PMC class who will benefit the most the PMC kind of leaders will benefit the most from that shakedown All right, shall we move on to the next point, uh, rather the next article, which is in uh, that august journal called Russia Today, uh, RT.com. But uh, but the piece is quite interesting. Um, it's titled, As soon as I saw the slave owner's statue being toppled in Bristol, I knew that the real anti-racism protest was over. That's not a very good headline, but uh, it's written by uh, Dr. Lisa quite, McKenzie. I think, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, I think it's quite provocative. Yeah, well, that's... That's um, SEO SEO driven headlines for for web publishing for you. Uh, yeah, why don't you why don't you tell us what's what's in the article? Yes, yeah, it's, it's worth saying that in the headline, the over at the end is is capitalized. I don't know if that plays into SEO or not. But yeah, so this is a um, a piece by Lisa McKenzie, who's an anarchist working class academic in the UK, an ethnographer focusing mainly on working class communities. Um, 
generally quite S- self-described. Quite I mean, I, I, we should be clear that George isn't describing her yeah. as a working class academic. I mean, it's her. It's the first line in her bio. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's 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 the way she presents herself on Twitter as well. Well, well worth a follow. Generally, uh, telling everybody that they're they're wrong when they need to be told this. So yeah, I mean. The context here is so we're talking Bristol, um, which is a, a city with a long history of of um, basically being built on on slavery. I remember going on a walking tour there maybe like five years ago, just walking through the city and seeing all the the, the churches with with stained glass windows and where the people people would um, kind of go before going on these these voyages, um, slave voyages. So. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really a part of this this city's history. And protesters then took the the statue of Edward Colston, who's a big um, who was a philanthropist and has his name on a number of different um, buildings, music hall until recently in Bristol as well, and took this statue and, and dumped it uh, dumped it in the river. So yeah, this is this is what um, this is what happened. And and Lisa. Mackenzie's argument is basically that this is this was a this was a spectacle. So she basically puts it in these these terms. As soon as she saw this this spectacle happen, she knew it was just another in her 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 words, simply another way for those with power to take over the narrative again. So she's she's uh, counterposes the spectacular or symbolic demands of, of of these protesters with what she sees as as probably the higher priorities for um people who she's who she knows or that she's researched um who you know working class communities or people from council estates who would instead prioritize jobs fear of poverty just you know dismiss of their stories and experiences so she's you know this is again i think an article which is um trying to to provide a, a critique of 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 i guess the the blm movement uh, taken as widely as possible yeah so it's it's i think another another kind of provocation one so yeah yeah i mean it, i think it makes a, a provocation one you make it sound like it's um <laughs> designed to kind well, of uh, wind people up and be contrarian when actually think, it no, makes no, very not. it makes very um effective and important points about the way in which it's, you know, the other point she mentions, which I think is um, pertinent, is it's also the third anniversary of the Grenfell um, yeah. Tower fire, in which um, scores of people, it's working class public housing in London, in the very wealthy part of London, which burned down three years ago, scores of people were killed in the upper floors who weren't able to get down in time, mm. who couldn't be rescued. Um, and it's become symbolic of uh, the poor quality of Britain's public housing in which many working class people still live, like about 30,000 people still live um, in similar kinds of accommodation and similarly kind of potentially dangerous, even deadly circumstances. And it's just been, you know, it's kind of, it's passed almost without notice, except for people like Lisa McKenzie drawing attention to it while everyone's fixated on um, on the toppling of a, of a statue in Bristol, somebody who is alive in the 18th century the other point to mention, I mean, that which uh, to add to it, George, is also Bristol. And for listeners who aren't familiar with the UK, it's a, you know, it's a wealthy university town, um, very middle class, very hipster and kind of um, bohemian radical. And so that's also not even, hi- think, not even um, hipster because it, pre- you know, the kind of bohemian aspect of Bristol well predates the <laughs> the globalization of the hipster. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it has a long standing sure. kind of left 
alternative scene. Yeah, but just to, I mean, yeah, just to kind of, uh, just to clarify the kind of place where, um, you know, where this was seen as uh, an important part of radical municipalism. It's also a particular kind of the country, particular part of the country that's worth bearing in mind. I mean, I think she makes a point, she does concede that, rightly in my opinion, that, you know, if communities want to take a statue down that it feels doesn't represent them, uh, that's entirely fair, especially as many um, statues that are put up by, you know, local authorities or whatever, um, or even, you know, privately driven are often uh, packed, what did did she put it as, Um, you know, envelopes full of money, you know, basically. Um, Cash-filled envelopes. Cash-filled envelopes that basically private, uh, private interests give to the to the council and say, hey, I want to, you know, I want, I want a statue of myself up here or of, you know, my great grandfather for that matter. Um, and I, th- I think that's right. I think, you know, th- the whole statues debate is annoying. Uh, it's annoying that it even exists because you end up having to defend particular statues or have a, you know, I, you, you can't have a general position on statues. That's a ridiculous thing. Um, other than maybe take them all down, which with which, I, you know, fine. <laughs> um, you know, so... You, unfortunately, the kind of nature, the kind of cultural nature of these things is that it ends up becoming that. And I think this was seen, I mean, Lisa McKenzie doesn't reference this in the article, but after the big protests in London, I think on the weekend of the 6th and then the following weekend as well, you had kind of counter protesters, uh, more right wing nationalist protesters around the country, even setting up, you know, 24 hour guards of statues um, in, you know, small town city centers and whatever, uh, to try to avoid them being knocked down, which is kind of also ridiculous, because also who cares about those statues, you know? Um, and so the nature yeah, but low, of the... But people do, though, but that's the point. People do care about those statues. Yeah, I, don't think, I don't think people do, really. I mean, I think that's the point. No, like... they, no, 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 but they do. No, 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 because this isn't just statues of slavers, you know? So, I mean, this was the, you know, there was... A, a statue in um, on a southern coastal town of um, Baden Powell, who set up the um, founder of the Scouts, and obviously had views, um, you know, as you'd expect the founder of the Boy Scouts to have. And there was the local authority was going to move it again, kind of preempting um, preempting the pressure to move it, and locals were very disgruntled by it. I mean, you know, why would you not expect them to be? No, fine. I mean, but again, you can always discuss the, the the case of one specific statue. But you know, just as a general point, um, you know, I don't think there's a, a kind of people are particularly defensive about statues. I don't think people are particularly attached to it. It only plays it's, out then on the symbolic yeah, level with a kind of with a kind of right wing protesters in central London trying to defend the Churchill statue and you know singing ten German bombers and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, that's a, an absurd symbolic politics in the same way that the BLM stuff is. Yeah. No. Well. Well, that's that's entirely true. But I think this is a particularly interesting one because the walking tour that I went on was organised by people who were involved in the campaign to to take this statue down. So it's been a long it's been a long running. I think it it's over five years, probably more like ten years ago mm. um, now. And so it's been a it's been a long long uh, running um, uh, ca- yeah campaign to try and get basically this 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 name. Um, removed from from i guess bristolian public um spaces so yeah i mean i guess it's it has become charged at least in the uk and probably the us context as well um like all of the the culture wars of the last few years times all of the um i guess pent-up energy and and demobilization of the lockdown um have, have kind of built up together and then 
exploded into these these um kind of almost pitch battles over over statues i mean i think my my take on this is that the the dissipation of this energy energy will be will be fairly rapid i don't i think there might be some some leftover struggles over certain uh, naming of certain you know buildings or particularly in universities it then it might continue but i i, I don't i th- don't think people care that much about the statues it's there's a certain sense of you know what they represent obviously but the on the whole i think there's you know i don't know if this this is going to be a long-running campaign against kind of yeah historic statues in the uk but i, I don't think it will be so this is where I disagree with you, George, slightly. And I know we've had this conversation off air before. And I'd also, I think I disagree somewhat with Lisa McKenzie's take on it as well. So, you know, I mean, her her the, her argument effectively is um, forget about the stupid statues. Um, you know, the, the actually, the things that kind of matter to most people in the country, working class people um, in difficult conditions, not least, you know, exacerbated by the economic crash as a result of the lockdown, um, housing, wages, working conditions, employment, those kinds of things. And all of that, you know, I don't doubt is true. But also symbols are important in politics. And so, you know, while I take, you know, I take the thrust and significance of what she's saying, I think, and I don't, you know, I don't have strong feelings about the Colston statue. I'm generally against pulling statues down, but that's a different debate, um, irrespective of who the statues are of. But so the issue is more, um, you know, I think there is something to be read in the political symbolism of the kinds of statues that are targeted, the way in which they're targeted, and what it tells you about the movements, you know, both um, both the counter, counter-protests and the protests themselves. Um, so, you know, strikingly, like a statue of Lincoln was defaced, um, the pub statue of Lincoln in Parliament Square was defaced with um, the names of American black teenagers and men who'd been killed by U.S. cops. So, you know, so I raised this on Twitter and some people kind of pushed back and said, no, you know, it's a tribute to Lincoln. You know, it's kind of as if it's kind of um, reinforcing reinforcing his position. And I don't buy it. It seems to me like it's um, it speaks to a kind of um, political and historical amnesia and even nihilism and illiteracy that you would um, deface the statue of the man who signed the Emancipation Proclamation, um, but also that you would write the names of dead of dead Black Americans on a statue in Britain, as if there aren't people who've been killed um, by the British police here. Um, or yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. so it's it's this we. I mean, I guess this overlaps with your argument, Alex, with the, um, your piece, Alex, and I don't want to anticipate it. But the other point I'd mention as well is that Oliver Cromwell has also been targeted. So not just um, statues of uh, slaves, of which there are quite a few across the UK as a whole, but also Oliver Cromwell, who um, you know, if there's one individual, if there's a statue to one individual in the UK who helped usher in the modern world at large, it's Oliver Cromwell. And there's only, I think, two statues of him in the whole country um, who established firmly, you know, led the English Revolution and established firmly um, constitutional order and the supremacy of parliament over over the monarchy, destroying absolutism and authoritarian monarchy in this country forever. And that he would be um, that he would be kind of identified as somebody who would be in the same in the same uh, league as slave slaver merchants of the 18th and 17th centuries that speaks i think to 
a movement that simply has no connection to the historic and political struggles of the left. Um, it has the kind of garb of the left, you know, it's kind of has what appears to be the kind of the radicalism and some of the energy and the protest kind of politics of the left, but it has no connection to the history of democratic struggle and the struggle for emancipation mm. and the overthrow of reaction. Yeah, I mean, I, that I, I think yeah. is very clear in the fact that Cromwell is also targeted and I think it will carry on. You know, so Sadiq Khan, the um, mayor of London, has set up a commission to look at all public monuments. And I think, you know, that'll bubble. You know, I think you're right, George, you know, the kind of the tear gas will fade away and the people will go home once they get back to work when the lockdown ends. But that commission will go on. And I think it probably will end up um, quietly removing Cromwell statue in a few years time. George, any, you, I, yeah, mean, I mean, no, I, I mean, I think there's a there's. I guess the question is, which is raised, is a wider one about the left and whether the form, whether the left is is still really committed to popular sovereignty and to the extension of democracy. And this was a big question raised by by Brexit in the UK, at least. And it was quite an equivocal answer given. And I mean, this is the this is it is probably a symptom of a deeper deeper malaise within within the British left that. Cromwell is not seen as a figure of, of you know, not celebration or um, veneration, but just somebody who played a historic role in in increasing human freedom, which I think is unequivocally true um, that he did that he did do that. So whether if it's taken down by Irish to... radicals, you'd be like, yeah, okay, well that's a different story because I mean that at least has a connection. I mean because that at least has a connection to a past and a sense of a historical trajectory. Um, whereas I think what yeah, but the, strike... the statue is, the statue isn't in Ireland. No, no, exactly. I know, I know. Um, so and where, whereas if it would be in Ireland, it would be a symbol of 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 imperialism and colonialism. Whereas in anyway, I don't want to get into that. It's, I, right. Just... it's, it's, it's right. It's right. It's right by the Houses of Parliament. And yeah. it does, I mean, and there's that specific context is is very different. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not saying it should be taken down and then resurrected in Ireland. I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, on the but contrary, yeah. I guess the. No, no, no. I mean, of course, it's not to say that these these people are were perfect. Or, or of course not. But we we can presumably judge them as symbols of of historical change and historical movements and not as individuals and their psychology is is neither here nor there really and they're sort of you know foib I'm not going to say foibles but they're right but you what you said George what you said as an individual you don't have to assess them as an individual they're a sim they're a, 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 um, a symbol of a of a historic um change which I think is hopefully one we'd all all support the English Revolution hopefully <laughs> hopefully Hopefully, I mean, my, my, that, my can't point, be ta- that can't be taken for granted, like you say. My, my, I think my point is, like, I don't know if you can even examine these and these protests in terms of left-wing protest. I mean, I think they're more emblematic of a wider kind of post-modernity, for lack of a better way to put it, of yeah, living right. of living in kind of post-historic mm-hmm. times and in post-history. If there's no tradition to refer back to, um, and I don't just mean you know, kind of conservative in the conservative sense of the word, but any kind of historical tradition, uh, the left has its own traditions. I mean, this is so completely cut off from that, that it's more like in this post-historic space, all that you have are these moralized arguments about 
whether you're symbolize good or evil you know and if and if you did bad stuff in the past then you're bad um and there's no sense of what your works were it's just an inherent uh, essence of of the person which is which is put into question and examined entirely in purely contemporaneous terms and contemporaneous i mean to the moment not even of of our times there's no even sense of of our times as the example of tv shows from 10 years ago getting cancelled which were like perfectly fine then and now aren't it's like this extremely accelerated cycle of new standards set in place completely disconnected from the past at each given moment in time about what is okay and what is not okay um and and so discussing even in terms of the left in terms of taking power or not and okay maybe it's not a good strategy does this tactic make sense within the context of this it doesn't it's just a i can't even understand it in terms of left and right and i think and here you know i think we should be fair and even-handed and be critical of the right for the exactly the same reasons because the right does the same thing and habits this kind of post-historic space which it might also refer to history but again in a completely disconnected and moralized sense of churchill as some great war hero whatever you know like as just as a way of making yourself feel good about being Mm. english today and no the english are the good people in history you know it's also postmodern bullshit yeah but well yeah and i mean you know churchill being the kind of the hero of um english and british nationhood is consistent you know um, that uh, people are ignorant or um, ambivalent or um, unconcerned about Abraham Lincoln's role in in the history of the left. That is, um, you know, that is shocking and astonishing. And the same for Cromwell as well. So it's like, I mean, you know, I take your point, Alex, um, that, you know, the gen- the point is more general, that we live in this kind of time characterized by um, political and historical amnesia. But it seems to me, you know, I mean, I can understand why people who um, are British nationalists, patriots, conservative on the no, right. But, no, but, it, no, but here, here, here is clear. Here's the moment because they are in general English nationalists and not British nationalists. So that I think shows the historical no, that disconnect. That applies as well. Yeah, no, that, you know, I mean, that's true. You know, there is. I mean, oh, so for people, for let me just clarify what that point means, just because I think probably non-British listeners won't be entirely aware of the, what the distinction between British and English nationalism. I mean, British imp- nationalism is a history of imperialism. It was carried uh, embodied mostly in the Tory Party, especially um, though Labour were no, hardly Labour. Well, Labour were hardly exempt from that. Yeah, yeah, okay. But the the point being is that English nationalism is a much more recent development, is much more plebeian, uh, working class even, um, and which has arisen partly in response to Scottish nationalism um, and is also a, a kind of response to like liberal elite cosmopolitanism so it's a very different beast to traditional yeah. british uh british identity yeah, i mean it it speaks to the disintegration of a unitary british nation but i still you know i stick by my point at least they understand that churchill is part of their tradition that the left you know kind of, that the left doesn't see um defaces the statue of abraham lincoln and that's only in the uk I mean, there's more happening in the U.S. I mean, just today I saw on social media statue of um, George Washington has been pulled down in the States, in Portland, of course. Um, You know, that the left doesn't understand their connection to those struggles. Um, That says something, I think, about the comparative, um, you know, understanding and connection to history and politics. No, I mean, I think that's... Yeah, it's it's, it's incumbent on us to make these these arguments then and to, to defend... To defend democracy and try and articulate the the relevance of these um, of this history, which I think I think Alex, yeah. I think 
the way you put it was right. That's the the postmodernism, the kind of um, amnesia and the anti-historic turn um, when ostensibly talking about historic figures and and symbols of history is, uh, yeah, I think you captured it really nicely. Well, and my, my point about the right as well, which I think is important because it's not just like it's not just about being even handed and, and, and you know, not just bashing the, the quote unquote the left, but also looking at it on the right. But it's what we've seen, I think, a very important development over the past 10 years has been the development of a postmodern right. Um, I mean, I guess arguably, arguably you could argue, you could say that neoconservatism is also in some ways postmodern. But I think especially the kind of new national populist right is very postmodernized itself and, and repeats a lot of what the left was doing. So whereas, you know, in the 90s, 2000s, you had a kind of postmodern left and you still had maybe a traditionalist right or the last remnants of kind of reaction there. Now you have a very different kind of thing going on 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 the right and in that regard you know like trump or bolsonaro or whatever perfect exemplars of that you know spending ages on on twitter and playing kind of provocative culture wars stuff and you know um, i'm not explaining it very well but i mean basically um completely mediatized politics on the right um i don't know if anybody wants to say anything more uh otherwise i'll move on to the third piece no i think i think we could move on to um so what, I don't know what how you pronounce the surname of this last um, <laughs> this last writer. Yeah, you you introduce it. You introduce it. Very strange. Yeah, how do you say that? No, stop it. Go just say what, what the what it is. Yeah. So this is this is a piece in the the always excellent. Oh, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. You introduced the last one. I think it's um it should be Alex who introduces this one. Fine, fine. It's my piece, which came out. Um, I mean, it's this week as we're recording this on Friday, the nineteenth of July of June. But you're listening to this as of Tuesday, the twenty uh, second. Is that right? Twenty um, third of June. Shit, I can't even. Twenty, twenty one, twenty two, twenty three. Yeah. Anyway. Um, and it was in uh, we'll damage the French revolutionary calendar. Yeah, exactly. That's what that is always the important question. Um, this piece was in uh, Damage magazine, which I would strongly urge you to check out. Um, really, always excellent stuff. Um, often with a kind of more psychoanalytic uh, angle on things. Um, this is a piece which I'd been kind of not that I've been wanting to write this piece for ages, but the thing that concerns me with it about kind of a globalization of a certain Americanism uh, or, or, you know, kind of Americanization is something that's been bugging me for a very long time. So I, I was actually pretty happy to have an occasion uh, to to write it. Um, specifically, it's something that, like, I think that we see increasingly in recent years, which is, you know, you have Americanization, first of all, uh, which is traditionally understood as... Um, the, the, the spread of American consumerism and habits and whatever, right? And you can think of it in terms of the symbols of, you know, Coca-Cola and big cars um, or whatever else uh, you care to mention. Um, then you have anti-Americanism, which has taken various different forms in different countries, sometimes conser- more conservative, more re- more recently more left-wing. You know, if you think of kind of the anti-globalization protests of the 90s and 2000s, they were kind of anti-American uh, in the sense of, resisting american consumerism um american corporate domination etc uh and then you have the kind of the 2000s version which was against american foreign policy so seeing america as inherently you know kind of warmongering uh destructive and you know probably sometimes racist as well um but what we're seeing now is something different and i think that's what kind of provoked me to write it that this americanization now is is the kind of globalization of of wokeness and wokeness itself, I think, domestically 
has an element of being anti-American, right? And and, and important to remember that a, a anti-Americanism emerges in the U.S. Uh, it's a kind of product of the U.S. counterculture. Um, so it has an element of that, of, of kind of casting the whole of American history as racist, um, as inherently tainted, and therefore something to be overcome uh, in in this kind of you know postmodern way, as we were just discussing in reference to the previous article. Um, and that has been globalized, and you see it everywhere, and you see the way in which people interpret their local issues, even when it involves race, purely through American terms. I mean, I remember like kind of, I think Ben Fogel mentioning this to me about South Africa, that you even get a discourse around minorities in South Africa in a majority black country. You know, so the the African-American minority in the U.S. doesn't map onto what the kind of structure of society and racism is like in Brazil or in South Africa, but much less in Britain and even less so in Denmark or Finland, which were kind of cases that I uh, mentioned. And I think it's, it's really... Uh, damaging to to kind of try to reinterpret your um, own issues through the lens of something else. It's again, it's this kind of disconnection mm. from the past, from traditions, from the historical development of different societies. Um, in the in in, in favor of uh, looking at things in terms of the global mediatized space of Black Lives Matter brands adopting it. Yay, we're all against racism. Take a knee, uh, white privilege, etc. You know, all these kind of catchphrases disconnected from mm. any historical trajectory. Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a really it's a really good piece. I mean, we we have to say that we have the the author on the podcast. Um, <laughs> no, you're meant to be no, critical. That, no, no, I mean, I I yeah, I think the the idea that you have the the globalization of this particular frame of of looking at politics, um, which is one from from America, is 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 something which which requires explanation. Why is it that the um, BLM protests have became I guess global so quickly and imported this specific American issue and this not that obviously racism is specific to America but that it faced the historical specificities in each in each national context by saying this is the this is the way that we want to I guess understand our own our own our own politics um yeah no I think it's a I mean I I commented on on an on an earlier draft like a, a demo version if you will um but yeah i think the i think it's you know it is i think that it is good to, to trace out the different recurrences of of anti-americanism because there's it, it does have some echoes of the anti-globo anti-bush um uh, george w bush that is a process that, I've, that i sort of vaguely remember from from back in the day but obviously it's instead of having the figure of power as, as the, um, that you're sort of protesting against being the president it's um it's a police officer obviously who does have power but not in the same way as 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 bush did and uh later, of course later yeah Obama and the, let me let me just bring one thing because i mean i know phil will probably want to say something but i just to make a distinction because i think someone called me up on on not being clear enough about these differences which is on the you have one thing which is the kind of more classically understood anti-American response, which I think you saw probably a lot of in uh, Germany, especially which is a long kind of tradition of, of anti-Americanism, um, which is this kind of complacent, like, look at them over there. They're all like racist, gun-toting idiots. Um, and we're kind of smart and educated and, and post-racial in Germany or whatever. There's that. And then there's another thing, which is the importation of American frames, of American wokeness, which comes out of the American 
you know, campus wars and stuff like that, um, which is a slightly different thing. Um, and they're both problematic, but they're problematic in different ways, I think. Because one, in one, you don't imagine yourself as American, but you see yourself as, you know, European and we're, we're good and against the bad America, which is a very kind of 2000s thing. Though, as I say, this kind of continues in Germany. Um, I highlight the case that, you know, th- this brought 90,000 people out onto Alexanderplatz in Berlin. Uh, at, whereas when there were protests about the, an actual massacre in, in Germany against Turkish and Kurdish people carried out by a right-wing lunatic, uh, it only brought out a couple of thousands. You know, so there's that. That's bad. But there's also another one, which is also bad, which is not we're German here and we're complacent, but we're also American and we, we're participating in this global Black Lives Matter because racism is everywhere um, and we're against it. And that's very problematic, but, it, but in a very different way. I, but the two things are connected, aren't they? Because the anti, uh, like you say, I mean, when people um, are protesting the death of George Floyd in Berlin while ignoring um like you know kind of um uh, the hanno massacre um they're also being anti-american i mean i think it speaks to it speaks to um an anti-americanism and but also their obliviousness as to how far those anti-american protesters um which is you know to some degree what they are how far they underestimate the extent to which they do actually live in an american world so i think the you know the subtleties and the nuances are um are tremendously kind of complex and contradictory um and it's a testament to your piece that you pick them up alex and i'm not just saying that because you know you're on you kind of lead the podcast and can edit out whatever i say i genuinely <laughs> think <laughs> i do genuinely think it's uh it's a tr- you know tremendously thought provoking and interesting piece and it's um what makes it so kind of appealing and important, I think, is that it resists being drawn into the quagmire of the pro and anti, but rather tries to understand it in terms of this weird dialectic of Americanism and anti-Americanism that are so intertwined. Um, so, I mean, there is, you know, it's so I suppose that would be my comment. I think, you know, on the one hand, I th- there is it kind of plays into an anti-American, you know, there is a continuity anti-Americanism. You'd protest against the Iraq war in the early 2000s. and now you- a protest against American racism, and it's a way of uh, boosting your own country. We're not as racist as those Americans, right? And we've gone through a period of moral rehabilitation by coming out onto the streets. You'd never, just as much as in Germany, you wouldn't be able to get that many people on the streets for the Hanau massacre. You would never be able to get that many people on the streets for um, deaths in British police custody. Um, let alone, you know, over an issue such as Ireland. You know, I mean, for, you know, as it was mentioned. Um, on social media, rubber bullets that have caused so many deaths in um, uh, over, you know, in police brutality and have um, mutilated so many people. They were invented by the British for the occupation of Northern Ireland. So, you know, this all of this yeah. is a way of um, it's a diversion from people's national politics and the realm in which they have the most capacity to change their actual kind of conditions and to gain greater political control. Instead, they parlay all of that kind of focus and attention and energy into this imagined space of Americanism, anti-Americanism and American racism. And it's really strange. It's profoundly well, it's, bizarre. And it, it, it'd be it's, right. It's, go it's, ahead, quite, it's quite explicable, though. It makes sense if you have a decreased um, attention to national politics and to the levers of politics at a national level and yeah, particularly in point. the European context are, are kind of 
focus on transnational structures, then yeah, why I mean this this feels as 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 real and as changeable um to you maybe as, as some of the domestic issues, which of of course is not the case. And it's it speaks and I mean the whole point about culture wars and postmodern symbolic politics is that is the form that some of these social struggles take when um nas- in the era in which national politics has been um suppressed. Um, either turned over to the market or outsourced in various ways to supranational, transnational, international bodies, particularly in Europe, like you say. And the other thing I would add here is it's not just um, the point that Cedric Johnson made about the defeat of Bernie being an important backdrop to the BLM protests in the States, but also the defeat of Syriza, Podemos and Corbyn in the EU being an important backdrop to the speed with which these BLM protests, you know, went throughout all of Europe, and it's a um, it's a way in which the left, I think, and people who feel attached to the left can uh, recohere themselves after the actual kind of possibilities for transforming their national context through electoral um, parties. And I don't say electoral to diminish them. I think all of those parties, Syriza, Corbyn's Labour, and Podemos, had genuine chances that they missed. Um, the defeat of those movements and those parties means that there is, um, you know, they found another outlet. And uh, that also, that context of left defeat is important to understand BLM in Europe. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, I think we should reiterate a point by we've made kind of implicitly throughout this about the curious timing of this, you know, that it's coming after the end of the, or towards the end of the lockdowns. Uh, and it's at the end of left populism. And it's a point that I do make in the piece, but it is really, um, I think, important to kind of understand it in this weird moment in, in 2020. Um, I think I just wanted to make one other point, I think. Uh, some of the things that pulled out, which... Um, I guess where, you know, so where does American soft power come from today, right? I think that's the question because I note in the piece that American soft power is weaker today in a certain sense in that, you know, Trump is widely hated abroad. Um, America is much less respected and you can look at like Pew Research polls around this. Um, so, you know, in that sense, there'd be a growing anti-Americanism again in, in quotation marks. Um, and, you know, people uh, certain in certain countries orienting increasingly towards China, as an example, or to Russia, or etc. Et um, so in that sense, American soft power is weaker. But in another sense, American soft power, as transmitted through its media, through its, you know, kind of social media discourse, through the universities, is perhaps stronger than ever, which is a point which maybe I'm glad actually I'm able to say it now, because saying it out loud, actually, it's like, no, actually, that is something which, um, which, you know, I didn't have occasion to put in the piece, which is, I think, I think is right. I think is right that the way that, for example, something that comes out of the American Academy, you know, kind of post-colonial theory, um, becomes globalized. Okay, so uh, we'll leave that there. All the readings, as usual, are in the show notes. Um, I've also linked uh, to my blog where I bring out some of the additional points I made here, uh, which didn't get into the original article, um, if you want to read the scraps. (laughs) So uh, this is out, uh, as you'll know, on the 23rd of June. At the end of this week, uh, we have uh, the Reading Club. Um, most we're actually recording this on the 24th of June so I'm not sure if you're hearing this in time whether you'll have time to send in any questions or comments um, if you do though uh, please please do so we're discussing uh, the professional managerial class uh, specifically Barbara and um, John Aaron Reich's 
retrospective look at what they had written in the 70s and kind of reevaluating that. Um, that'll be out on the uh, 26th of June, Friday the 26th of June. Um, of course, that's for patrons $10 and up only. Uh, and then uh, next week, the following week, on the 30th of June, we have uh, Kritika Varagur on Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia's uh, attempt to spread Salafism around the world. Really interesting. Um, very good to be able to talk about something in the Gulf, which we haven't really dealt with uh, before. So uh, really looking forward to that. Uh, and then we're back with another Patreon episode on the 7th of July, uh, which will be us um, picking up on various uh, bits and pieces responding to comments that you've made, criticisms that you've made of previous episodes, uh, discussing all that all together, and uh, perhaps some additional uh, B-side content uh, from other episodes as well. That's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, and thanks for signing up. As always, very greatly appreciated. Bye-bye.